You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. All right. Um, been told to speak like down the barrel of the microphone, so I'm going to do my best. Um, hello. Thank you for making the time to be here. Uh, my name is Ellie Davidson. I'm a Ballangara woman from the East Kimberley, so long way off country here and really grateful um, to be here. I'm just going to start by acknowledging country. Uh, I was um, thinking about the context of, you know, where I am and, and how I'm relating to parts of country and obviously, um, you know, having this water body behind us and knowing that it would have been a really important place of sustenance, of gathering, of bringing people together. Um, and so I'd just like to start off by acknowledging that and the Kulin nations and people who have um, a connection and affiliation with this place. I feel really grateful to be able to help host and facilitate um, this type of conversation on country as uh, one of the few uh, Aboriginal town planners. Um, it's something I'm passionate about, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, and I think it's a really important conversation for us to be having is to think about the context of country and, and how we gather in places and how we truly understand the context of where we are and um, thinking about the past, thinking about where we are and thinking about where we're going. Um, but on that note, Thane, I just wondered if you'd like to sort of say anything from a local context and uh, introduce yourself. Uh, hello everyone, my name's Thane Garvey, um, I've worked over at uh, Wurundjeri uh, Tribe and Land Council for 11 years now, um, which is just down at the Abbotsford Convent um, and I, uh, yeah, I'd like to welcome you all here today, um, thanks for having me as well. This site here was actually, would have been very significant, I do a lot of work with the MCG um, and we have two scarred trees down there in the Yarra Park. Um, and this, would have, this, this whole area would have been super significant. So, um, yeah, I just want to welcome you to, onto Orangery land today and um, hope that we can have a good, good discussion. Awesome. Thanks so much. And Libby, would you like to introduce yourself as well? Hi, everyone. Uh, my name's Libby Porter. Uh, I'm an uninvited guest living on Wurundjeri Woiwurrung land um, and want to pay my respects to uh, your community, Thane, and to you um, and for our connection, which um, has been a really wonderful one, uh, and, uh, and to pay respects to country and to all of the people of country um, in all of the places that we... Uh, that the planning system intervenes, which is everywhere. Uh, and, um, yeah, just want to bring that sense of responsibility into our conversation. Um, thank you. Thanks so much. Um, well, it's all going to be pretty informal. Uh, I love that we're sitting here in a circle and I've personally got a cup of tea. So it feels like a, a nice way to be having these kind of conversations. And I think as well, like for us, it's like, you know, not about 
sitting here and having a PowerPoint. Like I love that we're actually outdoors and that we can see and feel and sense country and um, actually feel connected to it in a different way. So um, I'd just like to say thanks to Sarah for bringing us together and um, for, for hosting this event and um, the opportunity to, yeah, just have a bit of a yarn about country. That's what we're really here to do. I think um, it's really important, um, I feel, to start with a yarn about the fact that, you know, First Nations people were the first planners. I'm an avid believer in that. You know, there was a very complex system around how we engaged with country and there was, a particular purpose and, and plan and complexity around how different parts of country were used. And I think that that is a really big misconception. Um, unfortunately, within our education system, we've been led to believe that, you know, people were just like walking aimlessly and might choose to just camp somewhere, and just had no purpose maybe in the way that they lived their lives or how they engaged with country. And I think that's a huge misconception uh, and something that I think it would be great to have a bit of a yarn about. So, um, Thane, I remember when we were having a bit of a yarn, um, you sort of talked about like, you know, sustainability and that being like a First Nations concept. Would you like to kind of expand on that? Yeah. Um, yeah, so, <clears throat> well, uh, um, if you guys haven't... Uh, dived into what it is that is our culture um, as of yet. One, one of the main aspects of our culture is the fact that it was based around sustainability. Um, I don't even know how much they – I'm sure they did, but I'm not even sure if they, how much they actually realised, how much we realised that um, – like how, how well of a job they were doing. But the way that we, the way that we moved throughout the land, um, the way that we – used our resources in a way that we didn't overutilize them um, was it was just crazy to think uh, about how long we did that for from uh, when you look at the way how fast things move today and you look at how way, how quick things go up today and um, the way that uh, the way that the world moves today it's a very different place but we had um, the way that we went about things here, right where we stand is it was it was beautiful because we we lived in one one we lived one with the country we we didn't live um off the country we lived with the country and and it was it was I wish I could have seen it back then um I'm from Hillsville so I'm I live up at uh, Badger Creek there and we've still got some beautiful creeks and beautiful rivers up around there and it gives you an idea of how beautiful it would have been back then it's kind of hard to comprehend now when you look around and we have got a lot of pollution and we've got a lot of um we, we live completely different now but yeah when you get out to them areas you can kind of start to comprehend how this this area would have looked and how this area would have been um i know the, the mcg in the yarra park which isn't far from here um was a massive corroboree ground so we had um tribes come from other areas and we used to have celebration and trading and we used to use a, that area for a, for a bunch of different reasons but that was a very significant reason which is uh, a very significant spot sorry which is one of the reasons that um that I'm working with the MCG at the moment just so that we can um yeah make that spot something special again and it is it's the MCG but from from, from an indigenous perspective and um yeah, well, we had um, we had a, a lot of ways that we we kept the land in check. We never overhunted. Um, we never used um, 
unsustainable practices. We obviously, like I said just before, we moved throughout the land um, as the seasons changed. Now, I might get this wrong, so don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure Wurundjeri had six seasons, not four like we do today. Um, and that changed without tribes, that uh, changed throughout tribes, sorry. Um, I've heard that there's tribes in Western Australia that had up to like 11 seasons. So um, completely different again. But yeah, here in Wurundjeri country, I'm, I'm, from what I know, we, it was six. And um, we would move in collaboration with them seasons throughout our land. So, yeah. It's so funny you should mention that because even just at the start of that little yarn, I was like, oh, the seasons and like how in tune we would have been with them because, you know, generally um, there would have been places that would have been better to live in different seasons and in different climates and that then allowed us to kind of go, you know, have a light touch on places. So, you know, that kind of concept of us like being nomadic, um, and not and moving around is true in some parts, but that was because we wanted to have that light touch on country. We didn't want to take more than what we needed and we would have these practices of making sure that we were sewing back into the country so then when we came back around in that cycle, the things that we needed were there. So it was kind of like, you know, we were surrounded by our marketplace in whatever season we needed to have certain things. So it's that whole thing about just being so in tune with country and kind of knowing, okay, like we've got to start doing these things so that we can move on so that when we come back here, it's going to be a place of plenty. And I think that that's such an interesting thing to think about, you know, like what that would have looked and felt like to be so in touch with what was going on around you. Do you ever kind of think about what that would have been like? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, especially as a kid, um, I do now as well, but as kids, we all know that we have a bit of an imagination. Um, and Dad drilled um, Indigenous culture into me as a kid, and I'm so glad he did. But um, my mum's extremely engaged in Indigenous community as well. Um, and so I was taught to think about the past as a kid um, and think about what it was that uh, what what it yeah how how our land looked and how we worked with our land and um, so when I was a kid I always used to imagine it I used to I uh, I lived just up from the Corrindurk Mission if any of you are familiar with that um, and that's a significant spot because that's where a lot of my ancestors are buried um, and it was a mission where we were kept for a long time so I used to go down there and imagine like how like try to imagine how it would have looked um, even still. Uh, some days I go down there um, fishing and, um, you know, we just kick back camping down there. It's normally New Year's we go down there, um, well, it used to be. And, yeah, some of the ways that I used to think about the land and used to uh, take it in, it, it, like I said, it's hard to comprehend, but I do, I do try to imagine them things, yeah, and I wish I could have seen it. Um, yeah, it's good getting out to them uh, more remote areas these days and, having a look at the more of the untouched land and uh, seeing, getting an idea about that, what that would have looked like. But, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's like a, it's kind of a really interesting time to be a First Nations person as well, I think, because like, you know, the generations before us had to be quite closed about like, you know, identifying, let alone sort of sharing knowledge. So there's this like really interesting revival that I feel like is taking place in terms of this knowledge kind of, coming back through and these cultural practices being a lot more kind of integrated into who we are and, you know, I suppose acknowledging like how 
important that is. Have you seen a bit of a change in terms of like the, the types of conversations that are happening now and that kind of cultural knowledge that is being shared and kind of revived and practiced more than it has in the past? Yeah, definitely. Um, especially throughout schools. Um, still a long way to come. Um, but when I was in school, I remember we had a teacher, I forgot his name now, but he was a, he was a good bloke and he was a he was our history teacher and he used to teach us about um, the Holocaust and a bunch of other things. And um, I said to him one day, like, why don't we, you know, why don't we learn about the history that we have right here, history that's local? Um, not that that's not important, but I just, you know, I questioned him and he's like, no, you're 100% right. Um, but it just wasn't even an option. And um, now my nana uh, teaches language in Hillsville High School. Oh, she was teaching language in Hillsville High School. We're trying to get some more funding for that again so she can go again next year. But um, at this stage, it's looking positive. So things are changing, but it's not just that. It's just the outlooks that you see um, throughout different people now. When I was young, there was a lot of jokes made. There still is, but it's getting better and it's getting people are you actually get more people standing up for you now they might not have even they might not even know much about indigenous culture themselves but they know that it's wrong that that to downgrade it or to um downplay it especially when indigenous culture was one of the reasons this country stayed so healthy for so long um so yeah things are definitely changing for a more positive um yeah it's changing and it's good i can't wait to see where we are in 20 years and hopefully we can keep working in the same way because it's, um, it's important, especially for, for us. So. Yeah, absolutely. And Libby, I'm keen to hear from you just in relation to, you know, I suppose like, you know, pre-contact and um, what, what you find fascinating about like First Nations systems when it comes to country and planning, like what have you learned about and what really fascinates you about, you know, kind of understanding a little bit more about how that worked? Uh, totally fascinated um, in a, from a different perspective, I suppose. Um, uh, kind of a feeling like, I don't know how you're all feeling at the moment, but like I'm shattered. Um, I'm so tired. Uh, and I kind of think, gosh, I don't reckon it would have been like that. I, I reckon it would have been calmer and more in tune and less frazzled and less frenetic um, and, and a different kind of pace. So, um, you know, I could be doing all sorts of weird white essentialising here, so you'll just have to roll with me, Ellie, but you did ask. Um, that's in, in my mind's eye, that's where I go, um, to a kind of uh, a state of being that um, must surely have been by all the evidence, exactly as you've just said, Thane, here is a, a society and a law system and a system of governance that created what my mob found when we pretended to discover it, um, which was paradise, right? So, like, there's got to have been something pretty marvellous happening um, for that and that we have obscured that from view and denied it um, is our great shame, I think. And, um, and I wish... You know, we were talking about this a little bit last night, weren't we, about what we wished was in, you know, the, the planning curriculum or the built environment curriculum and, uh, you know, part of, you know, really big part of me really wishes uh, I could have had an opportunity to learn differently about where I am, um, why I'm here, what my relationship is to this place, um, which is an incredible place. Uh, so, yeah, like, that's what I kind of yearn for, I suppose. 
Yeah, it's tough, isn't it? Kind of having those points of reflection and going like, you know, we're, I suppose trying to revive that and bring that in, but there's, um, I don't know, there's that kind of, you know, gap or space that we're, we're trying to kind of fill and, uh, yeah, I suppose like imagine, you know, you, it does take you kind of going to a place where you, you try to immerse yourself in what it would have been like. And I definitely think the more like kind of raw parts of country allow you to do that in a different way than being in a city um, landscape like this. Um, it's really interesting, like I think sort of moving to that kind of point of contact and, you know, I, I like to have these yarns like past, present, future, but when we were kind of catching up, you were sort of talking about continued as well. It's not that our, our culture is in the past, it's just uh, outplaying in a bit of a different context here. And um, one of the things that um, as we were sort of just having a yarn there, I was thinking about is like, you know, the, the complexity and the, and the system that existed for First Nations people around planning was very integrated between people and animals and trees. Everything was like equal. So, you know, um, you see these diagrams of like this more kind of um, circular kind of um, space where humans are at the same kind of scale, I suppose, as, as, as everything else that exists within country. And then the kind of colonial um, mindset and, and system is more about like a triangle with like people at the top, um, generally a man, but that's a different yarn. Um, and and then how it's it's this more kind of hierarchical system. And yeah, like unfortunately, I think that, um, you know, the, the planning system is about, you know, people and like the environment over there and there's this kind of disconnect. And so I think it would be good to have a bit of a yarn about like, yeah, like how... Um, how the kind of Western system being imported from somewhere else, a place a long way from here, has really kind of impacted and, and changed country and changed the way we, we think about country and changed the way that we engaged it, engage with it. Like Thane, I know that you've had a lot of uh, experience in the cultural heritage space. So be good to hear from you, like just in terms of your interactions with the planning system, this Western system that we now have to engage within and, and how it's different from sort of what you've learned from your family. Yeah. So um, when it comes to cultural heritage work in Melbourne, uh, in Victoria, sorry, we do have the, we actually have the strongest act throughout Australia. So we have the strongest legislation to protect, to protect Indigenous sites. Um, and it, it's still very slack but it's the strongest we've got in Australia. Um, and it is very different. Like, we go out on sites and from, from an Indigenous perspective, I don't want to sound too negative here, but it, it, it is, it's depressing when you work in cultural heritage because it's, it's mainly about destroying sites. Um, you, you, you go out there and it's about recording them before they're gone so that we do have a leg to stand on in the future. Um, and that's great, but when you're only... See, I started that work when I was 15. And um, I remember looking back and I just couldn't wrap my head around it because Dad used to tell me that I was working for... Like, I was, I was supporting my culture because I was. I was, I was getting that... Uh, I was getting that report down and I was making sure that people knew that there was a site there or there was something valuable there. Valuable there. But... Um, then, then you come back six months later and you might be working down the road and you see that same site that you just recorded all them artefacts on or them scarred trees or whatever it may be and there's just houses on top of it. Um, you, you get that you know, like in Donnybrook, uh, Doreen, Wallert, 
out to Epping and um, Wandong. All them, the north has just gone crazy at the moment um, with that kind of stuff. And it is different because you look at like places like, like I said, I'm from Hillsville and we are very, I guess, from a, um, from a certain perspective, people would say that we're underpopulated out there. It's a lot of bush and it's a bit of a country town. And um, So I'm used to living in that kind of environment. And when I've heard about the way that Indigenous people and us Indigenous people worked with the country, and then you look at the way that councils and gov government uh, plan future today compared to how we used to plan future. Um, it was nearly like we didn't have to plan future because by the way that we lived, it, it just looked after itself. Obviously, we had burns and we, start, we did stuff like that because of the fact that uh, we needed... Uh, a, lot of in, a lot of Indigenous native trees actually need heat to pop seed. Um, so you had to have constant burning. But we... Um, yeah, it's so different now. And, and having the uh, experience in cultural, cultural heritage work, um, it is, it's, it's interesting to see how it might change over the next few years. Um, and if we can get legislation, if we can get Activito, like, like you, we, me and Libby have talked about many times, um, then that would be so great. And um, for anyone that doesn't know what Veto is, it just gives us the right to say, no, we don't want that there or we don't want to build that there. Um, and yeah, so it'd be, it's going to be good to see how it changes. Hopefully we can get, um, work, work in the, working in a, in a better direction, but yeah, it's completely different and we got to work out how we can change that for the future and how we can plan things in a way that, um, that, yeah, make, make things more sustainable again. Try getting back to where we were. Sorry that I keep talking and it keeps cutting out. I'm, I have to aim straight down it. <laughs> down the barrel. Yeah, down the barrel. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, a really good yarn. Like, I think, you know, it's that whole thing about how um, human intervention was about prioritising country, not about prioritising humans, you know. The, the systems are different because of that kind of, you know, the, the circle versus the triangle. And, you know, even, you know, how you were sharing that those, those things would only happen if it meant that country was prioritised. It's like, you know, I think, unfortunately, this kind of Western mindset is framed around humans being at the centre of the universe and that everything else kind of has to follow and it's, it's pretty disappointing. And um, I know that there is a, a lot of discussion and proposals around change in terms of like where we're going. But, um, you know, I think that one of the things that I'm really passionate about is kind of um, understanding cultural landscapes ahead of making decisions around, um, our, you know, the future and, and what should go where. So even when you were sort of sharing there about some of your experiences in working in cultural heritage and it all just being like so focused on the tangible, like where is the tree, where is the evidence, who is here and it's like, wow, there's so much more to it that isn't captured by legislation. So it'd be good to kind of hear from you like just that kind of yarn about tangible versus intangible and, and what that means and, and how different they are. Yeah, well, it's, it's actually funny you mentioned that because the other, um, I think it was about two, three weeks ago, I got sent out to a site uh, with my old man and we um, went out and there was a proposed quarry to go in. Um, and I can't remember where it was. It was out in the north somewhere. Trust me, if I could remember, I'd tell you because I don't want it to be built. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, one of the things that we spoke about there was how it was going to damage the landscape and you're talking about how you can understand Indigenous landscape. Um, 
yeah, we had a look at that site and it was right, uh, there was a quarry here and there, there was a massive swamp underneath. Um, and then there was, on the other side of the mountain that they wanted to quarry, there was a natural spring. So the, under, the, um, the water body underneath wouldn't have, mustn't have been too deep. And so we had, um, yeah, we had massive backlash on that. And that is why we do need to read country a bit more. But from, a, um, from the tangible stuff, um, we, one of the things that we've actually done um, to help with that, because obviously you're right, a lot of people say, oh, well, like I've, I've rocked up to job sites before and um, walked out there and the farmer goes, oh, we've lived here for 150 years. We've never seen an Aboriginal person, you know, they, they weren't here and all this. And you kind of bite your tongue. I just let the archaeologist deal with it because I don't want to, you know. And um, anyway, he, they, they get to talks and that, that's just the attitude that a lot of these people have. So you need to find ways that you can make make them see it from a different perspective. And one of the things that we did recently was um, up at Altham, we had a, there's an eel trap there. And I've told a few people about this. It's, it's an eel trap that uh, was originally built by maybe 300 years ago, 400 years ago. And um, the way that we did our eel traps, we had a, had a rock wall that went into a kind of a funnel area where we'd weave a basket and then funnel the eels through down there and then let the current uh, go around the outside. Um, but the site wasn't protected enough and we actually had a bunch of endangered plants there and stuff like that and we couldn't, we didn't, we couldn't find any artefacts on this particular site so we were trying to figure out different ways that we can protect it. Um, and one of the good ways to counter the untangible versus tangible argument is um, make new things. Like we, 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 we re-scarred a tree um, and we did it. Uh, Wurundjeri Corporation, we all got together, all us fellows, and we scarred a tree and then we made a shield and then we did heaps of cultural practices there and that's the thing that people don't remember that you, you don't have to, ha it doesn't have to be old to be cultural sensitive. sensitive. So you can, you can go out, I can, we, we, any Wurundjeri person could go out and scar a gum tree right now and that needs to be protected the same way that ones do that are 400 years old. Um, so that's one of the things that we've used to kind of combat that but it is, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting to see where that tangible things going to kind of like, how are we going to get that across the line? How are we going to say, oh, but this land means so much to us and then they turn around and go, but it's not the same that it was. We don't even have the same trees, we don't have the same, but they don't understand that land's land and it's our land and it does mean a lot to us. Um, so, yeah. So important and, you know, that, that whole process of reading country as you referred to it, you know, I think it's just something that needs to happen before we get to the development application stage of a project, you know, like actually giving First Nations people a voice much earlier in the process to help people that understand the regional context and the story of country and how places are connected to each other so that that starts to set a bit of a structure and a framework around decision making because then when you drill down to like that final part, it's like, oh yeah, well that's connected because we, we already knew that we had that reading of a place beforehand. Um, you, you mentioned there about that farmer and I've never seen an Aboriginal person here. Well, duh, because you put fences up and we could not access this place. And, you know, it, it, I think access to country is probably one of the biggest, like there's so many big impacts, but it's, it's probably been one of the most challenging things for Aboriginal people in continuing their connection to country and to culture because it's basically, you know, privatised this whole... Um, you know, part of our obligation and, and you know, I, I talk to Mob all the time about 
how challenging it is to be able to get back on country, to protect culture, to connect in, to, to have that access taken away from you, I think has been a, a pretty devastating um, part of the story. And um, Libby, I'm, I'm keen to hear from you just, you know, the, that yarn about like the impact of, of Western colonisation and, and, and how it's been facilitated through planning legislation and what you kind of see um, have been some of those impacts for First Nations people in Australia. Yeah, there's a big, big thing. Um, pretty big impacts. <laughs> you know, let's look around. Um, uh, I mean, I think they're, they're just so comprehensive that they're hard to get your head around in a way, aren't they? Um, which is why I think they're hard to... Um, intervene in and and kind of puncture, uh, like smash into, because they're they're so um, embedded in ways of thinking and ways of practicing that we've just kind of normalised. Um, so uh, you know, a lot of the work that I've been trying to do has been around um, trying to understand what that impact has been and where it kind of comes to ground, where that kind of impact make you know is real and materializes and becomes concrete um and of course that's sort of you know the answer is everywhere um but you know through really key things that we now totally take for granted like fences it's good that you raised fences um uh, well not the good that you raised them good that you mentioned them <laughs> smash down fences um private property uh, or property, just generally. The category of property, um, the system of property, the regime of property, in fact, was invented. Um, the Torrens Titling was invented in South Australia precisely to do the work of stealing country from people and turning it into spaces that could then be used for you know, white wealth extraction, essentially. Um, so you know, we have systems here that are... Um, that we've t we now just normalise, but they're, they're just so embedded in our ways of thinking that we they're hard to unthink, um, and they're precisely the things that you bump up against in like when you're trying to do cultural heritage work. Um, of course, you know this farmer's supposedly never met anybody, which is always a bit of a strange claim to make. I think, um, nonetheless. <laughs> Let's grant him that. Um, but because, you know, private property excluded, radically excluded people, amongst all of the other things that radically excluded people, like pushing people to missions and reserves and, and just general, you know, annihilation and genocide, that kind of stuff too. Um, but the planning system has always been right at the centre of those um, mechanisms that have driven that, uh, always right at the centre. And so our, you know, we have a huge amount of reckoning to do um, about what it means to unpick some of that somehow. Uh, and it's pretty fundamental, I think. Bit of truth-telling for 2.47 in the afternoon. <laughs> and a very important conversation to have because I think that unless we can have that, yarn and have that dialogue about the context of what planning has created and what it's meant for First Nations people. You know, it's like with anything, we can't go forward unless we look back and we're actually truthful about the things that we need to resolve or the concepts that have, you know, created such a big challenge for us all to try to wrap our heads around. But I think that there's also, you know, 
ways that we can influence moving forward. So um, it's it's interesting because um, I've been involved with the um, Planning Institute of Australia, Planning with Country Knowledge Circle. And um, one of the things that's like we've kind of, one of the things that I like to talk about is like, you know, decolonize your mind. You know, we, we all, and I have to do this too. So I'm a seventh generation descendant of Captain Bly. I, I have, you know, colonizer blood that runs through me as, as well as, um, my connection to, to Mob in the Kimberley and, you know, so I, and I've grown up and my dominant culture is probably white. And for me to actually be able to sit here and, and, and say that and be okay with that is such an important part of us all moving forward. We kind of have to understand our own story and how we sit within that. So that's kind of one of the first things as part of our kind of pathway or what we're trying to encourage. And then the next part is, you know, your area of influence, like understanding what you can do now that you understand more about yourself, how can you kind of change your practice in the small things? And then we decolonize the planning system. And, you know, it's like this big thing. And, you know, uh, I have the CEO badge me a lot from Payer going, what does that mean, Ellie? Like, tell me what that means. And I'm like, it can mean lots of things, David. So let's sit down. Let's have a yarn, another cup of tea. You know, like it's not going to be solved overnight. Um, and so I think like sort of having that person agrees. Um, that was perfect timing. I love that. Um, so I think it, like, it would be good. I, I always want to kind of leave with a sense of hope about how we move forward because we've kind of talked about this big problem um, and, and some of the truths that kind of exist around that. But um, be good to kind of talk about like what the future aspirations are. I know that Wurundjeri have kind of set up this subcommittee um, that are kind of thinking about planning and thinking about how you want to engage with planning. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and some of the work that you're doing and where you'd like to go as a corporation. Yeah, yeah. So um, the subcommittee is, um, it was a committee that we developed to work uh, hand in hand with DELP. Um, and it's basically, um, DELP reached out to us because in the past we hadn't had always the best relationship with DELP. Um, and obviously they want to, <clears throat> they want to mend that. So we, they reached out to us and they said, you know, we'd love to have, um, your input a bit more about what it is that we need to do to make Melbourne more sustainable, but more economically friendly as well. Like, um, so one of the things we've kind of got together and done, and Libby's been a um, great help with all this as well. She's been in a few of the meetings and um, we've had uh, a look at like, one, one of the big things that we're looking at is creating green wedge areas. Um, Delp wanted to do this uh, for a while and they, we're, we're, we're obviously big supporters of it because it creates corridors um, in throughout Melbourne and regional Melbourne um, that are very protected. Um, even even when it comes to companies like Vic Roads or corporations like Vic Roads, um, they have to go through more to build in them areas and they have to, yeah, they have to take more precautions when it comes to that kind of stuff. But that's just one of the things that we're looking at. Um, we're also looking at the uh, state of the Yarra um, and all our rivers, Mary Creek, Jackson's Creek, Maribyrnong. Um, we're looking at what we can do to educate people about how we can, about how, how we are going to bring that back and how we're going to make this healthier, this, this land healthier in this area. Um, and so there's a lot of discussions that happen based around 
uh, conservation and sustainability, and that's mainly what we aim for. Um, Wurundjeri also has a team that we call the NARAP team. Um, I used to work on them for a couple of years. I w used to work on the team for a couple of years. And um, that team is... So, so we kind of discuss what needs to be done, and then the NARAP team goes out and does it. Um, so they, we have them working on multiple uh, landscapes throughout the whole of Victoria, like we go all the way out to the Macedon Ranges and then all the way back down to Pakenham. So there's, um, there's heaps of different places that we uh, are looking after. And one of the things that I'm doing while I'm working with the MCG at the moment is trying to get them to get a contract to look after the uh, Yarra Park down here as well. Um, and because of all this influx of work, we've actually had to expand. So it is growing and it's looking positive. Um, I think we just put on eight more people just recently. Um, so yeah, it is. It's it's growing. It's it's looking really really good. And we just kind of the uh, working with Delp and companies like APA and um, uh, sorry APA and um, yeah, it's going to help. And MCG has been really supportive of, of, of us as well. They've been really good. So we're going to keep working with them and see where we can get to. But um, yeah, in the way of the subcommittee, things are looking really good. And we're actually um, looking at like a. Uh, well, there's heaps. There's like you've got some some areas that are 50 50 year kind of projects where we're looking at like where we're going to be 50 years from now, and then there's other areas that you're like, okay, well, where are we going to be in 20 years from now? It depends which one we're kind of looking at. But overall, we've gone. We've, I've reviewed heaps of documents, and it's looking really good and and positive at this stage. So, um, yeah, it's awesome. Um, and congrats to you and, you know, the corporation and your family for, you know, getting to that point where you, you know, were, were able to see, like, we need to, to develop these relationships, you know, to be able to move forward. And, you know, it's, it always takes a lot of time and energy and constant conversations to try to, you know, build those relationships and, and penetrate, like, in a new space, really. Um, so I just wanted to, you know, acknowledge the hard work of the people involved with that because it doesn't come overnight and, and it does um, take a lot to understand how you're going to kind of interact with that and what that looks like. Um, be good to kind of understand from you, like, what you think First Nations knowledge contributes to planning? Like, you know, if we're thinking about the future and we're thinking about, like, how you see yourselves engaging and where you'd like to be, like, what kind of contribution and value do you think that working with First Nations people can contribute to planning? Well, I'll just start with the way that we plan things today is it's... Well, we're, we're not... We're not looking... Uh, uh, the way that we plan things today right now, we're not looking at it from a future perspective. We're, we're, we're just, we're going for growth. We're going, our, our, our economy wouldn't um, survive without growth at the moment. Um, and there's nothing sustainable about that. We can only stretch out so far. Um, and when it comes to our culture and the way that First Nations people uh, went about treating this country and looking after this country, um, I think it comes down, when it comes to planning, our culture covers it all it really does there, there's nothing that um obviously back then when we did plan things out and we looked after land we didn't have the same landscape that we do today things have changed massively and um we it'd be a lot harder to kind of work out how to fix things um because when we had things things were never broken um but the thing but but one of the things that 
uh, if we followed them traditional ways, it wouldn't take long to get back. It might be a couple of hundred years. But if everyone just stopped right now and tried to follow them traditional ways, it'd be hard because we don't have enough uh, you know, wildlife to live off. We don't have enough flora and fauna to live off. A lot of introduced species. Rivers are dirty. There's no drinking water. Obviously, we need to keep all these um, things in mind and we can't just go flip the switch and get back to what we were. And people would, a majority of people wouldn't do it anyway. Um, so we need to look at ways that we can, with the technology we've got today and the knowledge that we've always had through First Nations people, we need to combine these things and work in a positive direction and see what we can come up with. And I think that's it's, it's such a huge thing. So the fact that uh, Indigenous corporations like myself are talking to other um, more governance corporations like DAL, um, it's, it's important because that is the future. That's how we're going to get through things. Um, the way that we used to plan with water, you know, the damming, the, it's, even out at Hillsville, we have a lot of runoff into our rivers and, um, and it's not good runoff like it once was. Um, you know, because we've got vineyards and wineries and we've got all these other things that contribute to these. And um, the way that we used to work with the land allowed us to live with the land forever. Um, so we need to try and get back to that and try to find a more sustainable answer for what it is that we call planning for the future yeah absolutely i think that there's some pretty core principles that we can you know base off and yeah i mean like as as a aboriginal person that lives in the reality and context of our society now it's pretty hard to go we're going to go all the way back like we just we just can't but i think that there is a lot to be said for kind of taking stock of like where we're going and how First Nations principles and thinking and core belief systems and structures and caring for country, I mean, I could go on, <laughs> um, could really help to inform where we need to go. Like um, the country that I now live on, Bundjalung country in, in northern New South Wales, has been devastated by these huge floods. And, you know, I, I wonder, like, would have the mob been saying, like, build in Lismore, like right next to that river? Mm, I'm not sure. Um, you know, and so we kind of, there, there is so much for us to be kind of thinking about in terms of ways that we can like stop and take stock and actually apply principles of deep listening to really inform where we where we move forward and, and how we can like empower First Nations voices because that knowledge of thousands of years exists and still exists and, you know, we are um, still, I think, driven by the same core sense of responsibility and obligation for country, which I think is what all of our planning systems need. Um, Libby, keen to hear from you about like what your future aspirations are. Like what would you really like to see change in planning and kind of trying to integrate First Nations thinking? Totally. I just wish we would... Oh, yeah. yes. Move if in. You, mo please move. Smaller circle. As needed. Um, cuddle the person next to you if you're cold. In a COVID safe way. <laughs> in a COVID, sorry. Yes, very <laughs> irresponsible, Porter. <laughs> um, do, do whatever you need to do to snuggle in. Everyone's getting tight. Everyone's walking in. Coming yep. in. Snuggle up. Love that. <laughs> so my, I guess my aspiration is that we just blow up the planning system. Uh, <laughs> there it is. Um, and like start again. <laughs> but I know we can't do that but we can work with the tools that we have inside the planning system because there is lots of scope um, to do interesting things. Um, and, you know, the work, I'm really inspired by the work that uh, Wurundjeri are doing, um, trying to advance uh, 
the assertion of, you know, Wurundjeri sovereignty in the planning system and that's been, uh, you know, a huge um, honour and privilege for me to, to just help a little bit with um, on a tiny little part of that journey. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so, I mean, that's kind of my big vision, I suppose, but um, in sort of smaller terms, step-by-step <laughs> -step kind of terms, uh, I mean, we were just talking before with Sarah about, uh, you know, things that we can use that already exist in the planning system, like um, writing in the values of country and the values of the people of country into the key pieces of legislation and the key planning documents um, would be a sort of start um, to open out those conversations and create, I think, a sense of obligation for, you know, the, the non-Indigenous part of this society that is here and imposing itself all the time um, to under... So we need to, speaking as, as from my mob, um, understand our obligation. You understand your obligation, but we have not grasped yet our obligation. This is a huge learning that we need to do. Um, so, you know, that, that little first step, you know, and for me as an educator and a researcher, that happens, you know, in, in our education and research spaces um, where we need to be, you know, training the professionals of the, of the future, if you like, um, to have that sense of obligation, you know, deeply within them that is not about what do I have to do because I work for DELP or what do I have to do because I work for a Shire Council or whatever, but is more about what do I have to do because I'm a person living on country um, and it matters that my obligation is, is, a, um, <laughs> is one of responsibility and, you know, fulfilling that responsibility. So I think that's, you know, a big part of the story that has to happen. Yeah. Is that? Yeah, no, I think that's yeah, that was great the way you put it. Um, yeah, it, like when it's some people actually, and I never realised this till my nana said this to me when I was younger, but she said, you know, there's a lot of reasons to why you get you, if you come across a lot of indigenous elders these days, um, there's a, there's a lot of indigenous elders that have a lot of built up anger. And it's, it's, it's a hard thing to grow up with because if you grow up in an Indigenous family like I did, um, you, you, you never understand why they're so negative. Uh, my dad's can be the same sometimes and my nana even worse. So um, they're, they're fill, filled up with anger and, and it's because, um, like you said, Libby, we know what our responsibilities are and the fact that we know that that is our responsibility but we can't act on it or we can't make the change but we know it is our responsibility to take care of this land and we've, it feels like we've failed to an extent because we were colonised. Um, and so you're 100% you're, you're right. It's, it's about getting the public and, and society these days to understand that living on land means respecting land and looking after land. It doesn't mean, um, yeah, the, the land's there not to serve you. And I think that's what it comes down to, but... Yeah, that's all I really wanted to say on top of that. So important. And, you know, it's like that, that core principle of reciprocity as well. You know, we don't just take, we have to give back. And, you know, it's this whole kind of space of trying to be engaged and kind of understand that, you know, everything has a consequence and it's all connected. And you can't just like take one thing out and it not kind of have a flow and effect into the bigger picture of things. So, yeah, I couldn't agree more in terms of, yeah, unfortunately, there is, a, um, 
you know, I suppose the legacy that has been left by agency being taken away is that unfortunately um, people are pretty concerned about, you know, what, what has happened here. And, you know, I, I personally am feeling a lot of climate anxiety and kind of going, oh my gosh, like, and, and I think that that's even more for, for people who have kind of um, had and fostered a sense of obligation living on country, being on country and, you know, knowing that the kind of state of the planet's going in a certain direction and it, it, it kind of pains, I think, First Nations people to, to see what that could look like. So I think um, something that I'm really passionate about and that, motorbike is too, um, is seeing more mob in planning, you know. I think that we have a lot to bring to planning as a profession, you know, because we do have these obligations. We carry this sense of responsibility about what our future looks like and we want to care for country so she will care for us. And I think that, um, you know, it's one of my life passions to see more more mob in planning. But um like when you when you talk Thane about like you know being part of the subcommittee or you're like sharing like with your family or people that aren't as involved like how how do you articulate to them how important it is that mob are in planning how do you kind of you know describe to them or have a yarn about what you get up to and and why it's important and maybe encourage them to be planners too. <laughs> um, a lot of patience. <laughs> no, it's um it's one of them things that. Uh, a lot of people don't understand. Um, a lot of my old mates, you know, I was a bit of an idiot when I was younger and a lot of my old mates have no idea about what it is that we're even talking about here. Um, and it took... Uh, when it comes to my family, I'm pretty good. Um, I'm pretty lucky like that. A lot of my family think pretty similar to the same way I do and understand that. Um, but, but what... Yeah, like I said, it, it's patience. You need, you need to get people to understand, but through time... Um, People don't change the way that they look at things overnight. Unfortunately, that's just that's just the reality of it. And um, trying to get them to understand is is hard. So you need to go about it in a way that you can get them to see your point of view. You can't sit. You can't lecture someone. You can't tell them they're wrong. Um, you need to sit there and inform them enough that that, that they kind of realise they're wrong. Um, and then they sense that within themselves. And, and, and it's a hard thing to do because when you start the conversation, most of them don't, they honestly don't realise that they're, the way that they look at things is such a, a bad way of looking at things. Like they, 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 think, it, they think about it in, um, they think that it's just normal. They, you know, everyone else thinks the same way. It's the way people live now <clears throat> and it's been normalised. So it's, it's, um, it's a tough one, but... With it's actually, I feel like it's actually starting to become a bit of a trend to treat the world better, um, as we've seen <laughs> with all the uh, maybe David Attenborough helped us out with that one, but <laughs> but um, yeah, it's 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 becoming a bit of a trend. Like people are, you know, you even see McDonald's trying to use cardboard straws and things like that now. But it's um, not that it's a massive massive guy. Yeah, it's <laughs> little ones. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's about trying to get people trying to get people to understand is hard. And I think as the big influx comes with all these new ideas and this new generation of thinking and um, understanding, I think it will help. And it kind of you know we never know. It might just be a big tidal wave of um, of all everyone kind of banding together and hoping that we can get something good out of this. Especially as climate gets more 
out of control, I think that'll people will start to realise that it's more important to get in, to you know to really take action and get get um, get involved because it's not going to fix itself, um, and we just need to yeah try get more people to understand that. Yeah, and I think like helping to um, helping people to understand that you know in a lot of ways waking up like every day as a planner thinking that I can actually try my best to have an influence on country and the health of country. It really aligns, I think, for, for me as an, a, an Aboriginal person. It's like I feel motivated to kind of, um, I suppose, uh, you know, those obligations that we have for country. You know, you can be quite active in the planning space about what that looks like to try and give back and, and see change. I think most of us are activists, you know. <laughs> We've kind of grown up around that space of trying to have really strong voices and influence um, and, you know, I think that a lot of planners are actually motivi motivated by a sense of justice, which is probably why I personally feel quite aligned with it as a profession. You know, there is a sense of wanting to do right and wanting to find and problem solvers too. I would definitely align with um, being a bit of a problem solver myself. But um, Libby, I'm keen to hear from you. I know we had a yarn before just about what you see your role in uh, as, as a, you know, a white planner and, you know, what your aspirations are for, you know, the future of mob in planning and what that looks like. Mm, definitely. Um, yeah, we were talking before about, I, I, you know, eventually want to not be the person doing some of this work. Like, we need to work ourselves out of a job. Um, and so I think our job is to create space so that, and, and create you know, pathways is the university way of saying it, pathways to education and pathways to blah blah pathways to impact, all that stuff, create pathways um, to ensure that uh, the planning system is being, you know, changed from within by First Nations people um, and creating, you know, opportunities for students to come and study uh, planning as long as that happens in proper, appropriate, safe good ways, so not in horrible ways, obviously, um, uh, creating opportunities for people to teach more um, so that we change the structure of our classrooms and we change the way we think about assessment and we change the way we think about, um, you, know, uh, you know, maybe assessment is like obligation. Uh, to a community might be a form of assessment, right, in planning. That would be a good thing in planning education. Uh, so I would definitely like to see, you know, huge growth um, in that area and, uh, and, and hope, you know, have a kind of a dream, I suppose, that uh, in my own institution, RMIT, uh, we might be able to, you know, in, invest in some um, scholarships, for example, for, you know, Wurundjeri folk like yourself, Fane, to come and study planning with us so that you, you're more tooled up with, um, with you know, the language of the planning system so that, you know, you're just, you can use that. It's a kind of capacity building. Um, you, know, you know, universities should be doing this work. This is our job um, to make universities do that work, I think. Um, so, you know, we, more things like that uh, and, I, and more... Um, attention to those small but very consequential details that really matter um, in the end. Because, uh, you know, while the big picture, you know, and I'm a big picture person, um, is terribly important, uh, it's all of those tiny, tiny little steps that will get us there in the end, I think. Yeah, I don't know. Is that helpful? So good. <laughs> it's always helpful. Always helpful. Um, and, yeah, I think, like... Uh, you sort of just talk there about like um, 
you know, cultural safety within the education system. We, we need that cultural safety within the planning industry as well, you know, to really know that, like, you know, if, you, if you're working with an Aboriginal person, you're not there, like, interrogating them, like, asking them all these questions and, you know, expecting them to be some form of authority that can speak into every single meeting that you have. It's actually about, you know, developing relationship, knowing who that person is, how they want to contribute, and, and also, like... Um, the need to prioritise lots of voices, you know, like uh, it, it's always so difficult, um, you know, within, within, within a planning context, people are just like writing submissions or talking on behalf of themselves. Like we, we actually talk on a collective voice, you know, it's a, it's a very different way of, of having a contribution. And so therefore, you know, the kind of planning system and industry needs to rethink about how we're expecting contributions from First Nations people and what that looks like. But that's a big yarn. Anyway, I feel like I've asked lots of questions and we wanted to leave space for all of the people that are here to, to ask some questions as well. So we're going to throw to the floor. I don't know if we need to use the microphone. It feels... I won't throw the microphone, but um, is anyone... Do you want to maybe do the questions? If anyone has any questions that they'd like to... Ask us as a panel, raise your hand. Let's have a question. Um, thank you. And thank you very much. I've really enjoyed the yarn. Um, so generous. Um, oh, just before you start, yeah. one thing that I'm just being reminded of, if you could introduce yourself and where you're from before you ask a question, that's helpful for us. Thank you. My name's Louise Wright. I'm from Tipperary and York, and I live on Wurundjeri country. Um, oh, my question. Uh, thinking about where you live, um, up the northern New South Wales, I think you said, and that there's just been all this flooding and, you know, um, notwithstanding that that's exacerbated by climate change, nonetheless, that's a, a semi-natural event <laughs> that planning ignores. Um, can you imagine an opportunity in, and notwithstanding this, you know, the suffering, <laughs> where this might be an opportunity to just reimagine uh, a different plan <laughs> that takes the shape of the river. No one's speaking for the river at the moment, where it wants to be. Um, and that rather than sort of think about where people should go, maybe we could have a different kind of drawing or maybe not a drawing because that's half the problem, is like the way we look at things in two dimensions from above. Um, that is starting with where the river wants to be and then we think about, like, where the humans are. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a pretty interesting conversation and particularly in the context of a lot of work that I do in Western Sydney. So um, the new aerotropolis around the Western Sydney airport is actually 
on the banks of Wainamato, which is Mother's Place, and it's a huge system of, of water that exists. It runs from the south all the way to the north, and it's um, made up of all of these complex, like, creek systems that are, um, because country is very, like, undulating there, it, all of the water kind of forms and moves towards South Creek and Wainamato, as, as we call it. Um, and I have lost sleep <laughs> thinking about the fact that they want to build like huge new cities, huge new developments in that area and what's going to happen to water there. Like, you know, at the moment it's pretty much all like farmland. Um, a lot of the houses are kind of up at the higher points and so, you know, um, it, it, it is an opportunity but also a huge responsibility that we have in terms of how we consider what's going to happen to water in the context of um, the Western Parkland city. It's this huge new city that they're thinking about in Sydney. And, um, yeah, I think about that all the time. What's, how close should we actually be thinking about, you know, um, being to this water? And, and should we be thinking about traditional ways of managing water with these huge, like, massive um, concrete drainage systems that mean that it's not clean, it moves really quickly, you know, we have no control um, over the water and, and maybe that's part of the problem. We want control. Do we have control? It's, you know, it's very complex and I think that unfortunately the Western system thinks that they can engineer a solution out of every problem but I, I yeah, I, I wonder about whether that's actually possible and, you know, these decisions get made at these very high levels. We need to put X number of thousands of people and houses in these areas and it's like, where does that come from and why do we need to do that and, and can we be thinking a little bit more differently about how we consider country and how country is now that could help to inform. Um, so, you know, I always find it quite conflicting in some respects to be working on these projects, but it's kind of like that whole thing, like if not us, then who, you know, and, and who's going to be bringing these questions in and I suppose in the context of one of the projects that I'm working on and um, trying to kind of encourage thinking is a more naturalised response to water in those areas. So understanding where those creek lines go and how they can be, uh, um, you know, natural drainage systems, green corridors that would allow that water to move in the way that water always should in those places rather than just thinking that we'll just underground it and pipe it and let it do what it does now and cause a lot of damage to, to country. So um, in the context of... Um, you know, water particularly, I think that that's just one element of thinking and responding to country in the way that she's calling us to respond to her. It's it's taking away this kind of human solution, but actually considering the context of how she wants to be and how we should live with her. Um, so that's my response. I don't know if anyone else has, <laughs> if you want to add to that. Uh, I, I was just about to say, um, we actually... Um, did a boat tour the other day and I, I saw this lovely lady over here. Um, and one of the things that we were talking about is how we're declaring the Yarra as a living entity now. Um, and it's one of the things that you've got to really uh, acknowledge is the fact that rivers are living um, and they, they, need, they need to be uh, not just looked after but um, appreciated for what they are and what they can do and the power that they have. Um, water has huge amounts of power, as we've seen many times. And um, 
I know I'm not sure about up there, but I know down here where in Melbourne we had um, ridiculous amounts of floodplains. Um, and if you look out at the north, where I spoke uh, about before with um, uh, Donnybrook and Doreen and Waller and areas like that, we you'll you'll find um, if anywhere's familiar if anyone's familiar with that area, you'll find that there's a lot of basalt rises, um, and there it's it, it's just a massive volcanic plain. But after it was volcanic, um, it turned into a massive swamp area. So the whole northern suburbs from like um, Craggyburn, maybe even a bit further, all the way back through to, say, Hurst Bridge, and then north to, say, as far as Wandong, um, that whole area was just flood. Um, it was just swamp area um, for thousands of years. Um, and all them, all them little rises... Um, we used to find artifacts on them and that because um, for a couple of reasons. For one, they were rise, so they were obviously out of the water. But for two, they all had basalt boulders on them. So it was a great spot to take a seat and um, work some artifacts or wait for a, um, a bunch of kangaroos to come by or whatever it was. And I think um, when going back to the flooding that uh, – the one of the main reasons we don't have this control over water anymore is because we don't let it free. Um, it, it used to cover massive areas um, and now we try to channel it into these areas where we want to control it um, and it's just not really possible, um, especially with the growing amount of water we need. So, yeah, it's a tricky one. Just to say I lo love that idea. <laughs> Let's do that. Got another question? Um, hi, panel. I'm Maddie. I'm a dark woman um, living here on Wandry Warrior Country, uh, just near Heidelberg in Banyul. I, I guess my question has got a bit of a preamble because you know, um, <laughs> but so I worked for a long time in uh, cultural heritage as an archaeologist, but I worked predominantly in post-colonial heritage. So an interesting place for. Aboriginal women to find herself in post-colonial heritage. But what always struck me was the extraordinary amount of uh, power that I had as a, you know, a, a government administrator in cultural, in, you know, white heritage. Like, we took people to court over painting their doors the wrong shade of blue. And then through my community connections, seeing, like, the wanton destruction of, like country and these weak laws and then I'm sitting over here like arguing with somebody about like a, a branch on a tree like that's how much power that we had in in historic heritage so you know to say that mob want more voice on country it's not like it's unprecedented because you know as a cultural heritage officer with no familial connections to a place I could make you know really strong demands and and then also reflecting on the power of developers and the power of NIMBYs and, you know, this, like, incredible power that people have to use the planning scheme, heritage laws, all of these things to their advantage. So I guess my question, and maybe, Libby, you can answer this, is how do mob use what we have like a NIMBY? Uh, a NIMBY is a not in my backyard. Like, so somebody who... It's fine to have this three-storey apartment block, but not in my backyard. It's fine to have an injection room in 
Richmond, but not in my backyard. You know, so it's it's somebody who fights very hard for their community. Sometimes, often they're very conservative views. Uh, okay, uh, that's a great idea. I like that. Um, Although we have to be careful of the, yeah, those politics around NIMBYism, of course. Uh, but I, I just think there are so many opportunities in the planning system. So, the, you know, the work that we've been doing together um, and uh, that the corporation's been leading and I was kind of helping with was tr it was essentially trying to map um, Wurundjeri interests, values, uh, governance system um, and... Uh, I guess, demands for redress into the Melbourne Future Planning Framework, um, which is the, the kind of next iteration out of Plan Melbourne at the regional level. Uh, and, you know, it became just very obvious through doing that work together where those intersections are and that we have all the tools, or many of the tools, maybe not all of them, but many of the tools uh, that we need so we can repurpose zoning, for example. Why not have special use zones um, based on Wurundjeri principles of connection and obligation um, that are applied in the same way that we might apply a bushfire overlay or that we might apply in the same way that we apply a heritage overlay? Um, there's, you know, we can just repurpose that tool um, to this end which we are trying to do. We'll see what um, <laughs> comes back. <laughs> um, and, and we have other you know, good tools at our disposal too, I think. Um, like there is a, a clause in the Local Government Act here in Victoria uh, that enables a local council to um, uh, leverage a kind of extra form of rates uh, for rate pay, so private landowners um, who, who agree, who voluntarily say they'd like to be part of this scheme, um, to use and to draw back that cash from them and to use that for some kind of public purpose. Now, that has only ever been applied to biodiversity conservation or conservation goals, but there is nothing in the Act that would preclude paying the rent, for example. Um, so, you know, we, we can repurpose these things. They're, they're written broadly enough for us to use them in different ways. We just need a bit of imagination, um, a fair bit of will. Uh, we need good, strong relationships so that, you know, we make sure we're doing things in relationship, not just kind of going off on a, on a thing um, and <laughs> doing it on our own terms. Uh, but, you know, I th so I think those things exist and we need to get much more clever um, at working our system um, to create those opportunities. Yep. Yeah, no, you're spot on. Um, it's, it's, it's a tricky one, but, yeah, no, we, you, like, like Libby said, there's ways around it, even now with the tools. Like, we you get most of the tools there. Um, and Libby actually was the person that told me about what she just told you guys about um, not long ago. So... Um, it's one of them things I'm still trying to figure out as well. <clears throat> but, yeah, it's, um, it's definitely something we're working towards and we're hoping we can get there. But, um, yeah. And, and also just touching base on the archaeology side of things, um, it's, it's funny uh, how you mentioned how you have so much of that power um, in historical um, kind of sites and historical buildings and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to cultural sensitive sites that may be a lot older and a lot more significant, um, there, there's nothing there. Um, I, th I think with the uh, uh, 
AVA, uh, AVV, which is the um, Aboriginal Victoria. Yeah, yeah. Um, they <laughs> they uh, they have a um, they have a f- uh, legislation that states that if uh, if a, if someone's to run through a uh, an indigenous site or a cultural, a cultural significant site, um, so say if they cut down a scarred tree or if they dug a dam where there was a lot of artefacts or something like that, that they'd be fined. But the way that they've worked it um, is that they have made it so that you pay a $1,000 fine. It's a flat, um, sorry, it's a million dollar fine and it's a flat fee. So it's a million dollars across the board for anyone that does it, um, which is extremely harsh for people like that make it um, extremely harsh for the little people that are only maybe doing something in their backyard. Um, they're not going to be able to afford a million dollar fine and they probably had no idea anyway because council doesn't make it clear. Um, but then when it comes to big developers, that's nothing. Um, it might actually be more expensive to do the cultural heritage work than pay the million dollar fine. So a lot of people just run through sites, pay the fine and just keep going and act like it never happened. And they're legally doing it because they've paid their fine and there's no, there's no way around that. So when you talk about having the power to take someone to court over a blue door, it, it does get frustrating because it's like, well, why don't we have this power in the cultural heritage perspective? Why do we have it in only in historical? And that's just a clear demonstration of how things aren't levelled up yet. Um, and, yeah, that's basically just all I wanted to touch on that, but, yeah. I must admit I was always struck by when the Japrung Trees was at its kind of height and the Corkman Pub happening kind of roughly... In <laughs> I did wonder that. Um, was just so telling, wasn't it, of the difference in application of a sort of same logic anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um I think a, a really big part of it is like thinking about reciprocity. I think as a as a planning industry, we want and and we're 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 trying to seek more from First Nations knowledge and perspectives. But like, what are we giving back? You know, how are we how are we increasing the capacity of of First Nations people to understand how they can engage with the planning system and what mechanisms and tools exist that you can sort of work within. At the same time as saying like, we definitely need some sort of rethink and strengthening about how Aboriginal cultural heritage is considered and and the strength of the legislation that sits around it because, yeah, unfortunately it's kind of not there or people aren't aware, you know, of uh, how important these things are, you know. Uh, And I think, like, I think one of the hardest things and, and probably one of the biggest kind of tension points is the fact that, you know, non Aboriginal people are making decisions about Aboriginal values and heritage. Like it, there's there's a there's a part of me that goes, I would never want to be in that position as a non-Aboriginal. I wouldn't even want to be in that position as an Aboriginal planner because it makes you even more aware that you do you do not have a right to make an assessment on somebody's connection to a place. It really. Um, for me, is about needing to put some structure around how more voices can be, what are the parameters around, you know, an endorsement of this is what I said, this is what we shared, this is the outcome that we all agreed on because now at the moment that closing the loop isn't there. So people can go, we went and did our engagement, this is what came out of it, but the the mob isn't necessarily there to say, yes, that's actually what happened. So I think that there's a little bit of like tinkering that could be required that might actually really kind of change the process in a way that would empower 
First Nations people to be involved in the decision-making about how people are responding to cultural heritage and values. And if I just quickly add on to that, um, and one of the other things is making sure that people are held responsible for the corruption that they try to bring into uh, an Indigenous community. Um, and one of the examples um, of that is... Uh, say, for instance, they might uh, someone might want um, to acknowledge the uh, the traditional owners in a certain way, but they do it. Uh, but but they they're really just trying to tick a box. They, they they don't actually want to acknowledge the traditional owners, but they they want that they they want to get it across the line so that they look good. Um, and what what a lot of people do is they they go out and they find someone that is indigenous, um, that might be from a certain tribe that has been disconnected from culture, that has no understanding about what it is that's actually going on um, because this poor person's been disconnected from their family, from their culture. They've grown up in everyday life, um, how, we all, how we all live today, and they have no understanding about what it is that their culture is. And people uh, look for these, these kind of Indigenous people and they grab them and then they say, oh, no, well, we, we spoke to this person. They're Indigenous, they're from this tribe, and, and now it's okay, it's all good. But they didn't speak to the community. And holding people responsible for doing that is important because it's hard. It's a hard to hold people responsible for that. But it's one of the things, like, uh, Jacinta Price is a perfect example of that. And, um... <laughs> pain in the butt. And, um, so, yeah, that's just my views on that one. Just went there, thank no, good just went there. <laughs> Dropped the bomb and then, like, yeah, I'm done now. <laughs> yeah. How much treaty will encompass all the thinkings that you're trying to, to talk about now? Or is there, you know, this bureaucratic process, will it perform some sort of, well, it'd be nice if it was magic, but some sort of duty of care across the board for all bureaucratic things? Oh, yeah, well, yeah. Oh, no, I was about to say, I was about to ask you to stop. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you I... caught me off guard with that one. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, well, I'm obviously not inside the treaty conversation um, and I think that's actually a, a bit of a problem with treaty that we're not inside the treaty conversation in the sense that treaty is a, is a negotiation between two societies. Two or more societies, right? Um, anyway, that that aside, uh, at the moment it's hard to see that. that may, maybe that's what's hopefully happening. Um, I think at the centre of a treaty conversation surely has to be land, um, and land back, uh, and governance and authority. Um, so a proper practice and rec and recognition, recognition and practice of sovereignty. Um, and then that has to be more than just saying anything along those lines. Uh, it has to come right down into decisions about, you know, land sales, land policy, use, land use decisions, uh, heritage decisions, um, environmental kinds of decisions. It has to come right down into there. So I, I think you're exactly right. Um, it's, it's hard to tell whether that's what the conversation is at this point. From, from I speak only from looking at the government side, but Thane, I don't know whether you... Yeah, no, well... Um, <laughs> um, we just need more people like Lydia Thorpe to jump in and make, 
like see more people in power is is, is what's going to make these kind of things happen. Um, and uh, when it comes to treaty, like these things take time too, because <clears throat> as much as we'd love a treaty, we want the right treaty. We and it's it's very hard to make sure that because once you sign that document, it's signed. Um, once we've made that treaty, that's final. Um, you can't you can't really go back on it. Um, it's very hard to anyway. So. Um, when it comes down to big decisions like this or ways or uh, when, when you want to make big change, it takes time because you want to make sure that change is right. Um, and I think that's just – it's a tricky one, but I hope, I hope it's heading in that direction. And like, like uh, Libby said, I, thought, I hope that that, thought of pro, like that process of thought is, is what's happening now and if it's more mo uh, moving towards that kind of, uh, yeah, thing, uh, way of thinking. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't really followed or I'm not close to the conversation, but I think for me it's like, what's the point if we don't have a seat at the table, if we, if we don't get a say on what, what happens, you know? Like, I think it's just then a piece of paper. Like, and um, in, a, in a lot of the work that I'm involved in, the thing that frustrates me the most is that, like, you know, we work with people in, in particular teams and everything just gets diluted as it goes up the line and the people who are listening to what we're listening to don't have any responsibility or accountability to the First Nations voices that we listen to and we try to document, but it all just becomes words on paper and gets diluted to a point where it's like, oh, yeah, whatever, you know, and, and people don't have responsibility to it when it gets to that point. So... I think that, you know, in, in my thinking, like a, a treaty has to be about, it, a you know, a seat or seats at the table and it has to be about authority and decisions that get made, not just, you know, we're doing something together and cool, but we'll, we'll make the rest of the decisions behind closed doors. It, it has to be about empowering First Nations voices in everything and, and that's going to be interesting to resolve in terms of the power structure that exists in our political system, but anyway, big yawn. Can I just throw something else in there? Because I think it raises this really important um, dilemma. Is it a dilemma? Possibly, it's probably not, but it's a, it's a predilection I think we have in uh, settler society, uh, in, in kind of academic fancy speak, we would call it the kind of liberal politics of recognition where we kind of move, we think we're moving towards, a, you know, we use terms like recognition and reconciliation and we want to do treaty and we want to do, engagement is, is my favourite kind of buzzword in this space, right, because we want to go and engage. Um, but, it, but a lot of it is exactly like what you were saying before, saying that kind of tick box approach. Um, and I think we really have, a, in my experience um, of working with my people, uh, we have a strong tendency to reduce things um, to this kind of tick box um, tokenism, I suppose you would call it, uh, and, we, and we wield power in those spaces. So, you know, most certainly the way in which treaty has been framed is a wielding of that power to make sure that the conversation doesn't get too thorny, um, right? It doesn't get too close to land back. It gets more diluted towards, well, let's have better services and let's have some scholarships in universities, I think, were mentioned early on. That's not treaty, um, right? That is not a government-to-government -government negotiation about how we will share a space that now we're all in. And, you know, and it's not a recognition that we've taken up most of that space and have most of the authority, uh, almost all of it, um, in that sense. So, you know, I think, again, coming back to what 
you know, from a non-Indigenous perspective, what our responsibility is, is very much that calling to account, um, an honest reckoning and calling to account when those things are, are getting uh, perverted in, in that way that, you know, you were describing before, Thane. So it's a great question. So important. Um, I'm just going to prep everyone because we might just go to our last question now. One of the things that this event is about is about action and moving forward, what we're going to do together. So I'm going to give you all a minute before we go to the last question to think about something that you want to kind of take forward. What's like sparked your interest? What is something that you think you can do or would like to action? It can be small, it can be big, um, whatever that might look like. But I just want to prep people. We're going to go around the circle. We're in a kind of small enough space. But last question. Hi. Um, it's kind of a good segue. I'm Brad Nugi Nungakul from Minjeraba. Um, and I don't really know if this is the right sort of question. But um, what you're saying earlier about like obviously acknowledging that we're a living cultural heritage and that it's not just about finding like sites and you know sites that have been around for hundreds of years and trying to find an artifact there, but actually like embodying the living cultural heritage and like creating a scar tree. I just sort of want to know like how did that feel? Um, yeah, no, it was awesome. I, I loved it. Um, that where we did that was actually this the same site as the eel trap that we found that was built from our people. And we actually found some spider orchids out there too, which is why we were trying to protect the land so much out there because it's only two or three spots in Victoria that we have found them still. Um, but no, it was amazing. I loved it. And because it was with family... Um, so within my tribe, we have three families. We have the Nevins, the Terricks and the Wandans. I, I'm a Wandan myself. And... Um, I did the practice with a couple Terek boys and a couple Nevin boys and there was a couple of um, Wandans from my family and it was good because it wasn't just about reconnecting with culture but reconnecting with family. Um, I don't think I'd done a cultural, any cultural practices like that with the other families um, in my tribe. Um, so that was really good and I, and I loved it. Um, but yeah, I can't wait to do more. So I think one of the things that I'm actually pushing for at the moment is to get the, so the scar trees that we have at the MCG there. Um, I had a meeting with the MCC committee about six weeks, seven weeks ago. And um, we spoke about, well, they, they had taken seedlings from the scar tree because it's still living. Um, and they only seed once every, oh, it's not, it's not real common anyway. I can't remember the actual time frame, but um, they took the seedlings and they had them uh, about this sitting this high. So one of the things that we were going to do is replant it next to the old uh, tree that has been scarred there. And then when it grows and it's mature enough, we'll scar it and then we'll have a new scar sitting next to the old scar. And um, I can't wait to do that either. But yeah, back to your question, it was amazing. <laughs> Thank you. And probably comes back to that whole thing about how can you work within the system, right? You were like sharing that yarn. I'm like, yes, you know, like... It's, you know, using what we have as a tool to then try to protect and get the most out of the system that we have to kind of function within at the moment. So, um, keen to start passing it around. Sarah, do you want to give any more explanations of what this means or what you're going to do with this information before we start going around? Yeah, sure. We're um, calling it a manifesto because we've, for the last five years, we've been running these black architecture yarns and... 
the yarns are held in this space and the energy is in the space, but we've never actually taken it outside of that other than the recording and people can listen to it if they choose to. So the intent is to sort of ask everyone, you know, what's something they wish they'd known so that we can embed that in the education system, what's something they understand about the planning system that they think should change, um, so that, or what are the barriers or the opportunities that you can identify or something that you've heard today that you think needs to be projected out into the world and then we'll co collate all of those from all the black texture yarns and put them out into the world and let people actually take some responsibility for it. <laughs> um, but the idea is that it's collective, so it's not just my voice, it's not just your voices, it's everyone's voices that are in this space. I can start if you like. Um, I would really like to see traditional owner bodies as referral bodies for planning uh, in the same way that you've got Melbourne Water and they have recommendations and rules that have to be followed and they have a say about what happens. I would like to see traditional owners have that same status. Um, yeah, I guess I think the planning scheme is really an unrealised opportunity but also an unrealised oppressor. And, like, I know Libby's been doing a lot of work and, a, you know, a lot of us have been speaking about it, but I don't think it's really understood how significant it is in decisions for country. And so, you know, I think it's what, I mean, yeah. <laughs> when we talk about upskilling mob and going to university and learning about these things is also understanding that it's a really traumatic process to go through, to have to, you have to learn and then unlearn these things. And so it's, it's kind of what do you do first? But I do think that um, acknowledging that, yeah, the planning scheme's an oppressor and then a real opportunity and how can we as mob, you know, upskill and then really infiltrate that system. For me, uh, when I listen to what you're talking about today and, and many other conversations... Um, oh, sorry. I'm, my name's Sam. Um, I live on Wurundjeri land in Alphington um, and I work here. Um, and there's it, it a tension between the, the, the value, the contribution where we started the conversation with um, taking a much longer view of time and generations and how much stronger that would be for the planet and... I think First Nations have that strongest message to give to us. So in recognising that and the journey of people in education and their careers and pathways to leadership and joining um, the, the bodies and not rushing a treaty, all of that, it takes time and a different perspective on time. That's what we've got with election cycles and financial years and so on. So listening to you talk today and having a sense of urgency but also a respect for that time um, for me, what I'm taking away from this is a sense of needing to be an activist as a white person of a European background and, and to, to try and... I, I don't know if it's appropriate, but to, to take a, a very um, much more active role and part in, in doing the quick bit um, while there's space for the slow part and create more and more space for that slow part. Um, so I'm not sure what the first activist action would be, but I think that that's it. That's why I love that it's a manifesto. 
My name's Jen. Um, I've lived in Nam for six years and also work here. Um, and been working closely with Sarah on black architecture for a while now. Um, and I guess one of, obviously I'm not a planner, but um, one of the things that really struck a chord with me was, Thane, what you were saying about um, looking back uh, at culture and history through land rather than people. And actually I thought that was kind of... Um, a really nice observation and that that is something that could be written into the manifesto as a way of um, recording, whether it's written or oral or um, I think that was, yeah, really struck a chord. Thank you. Thank you. I think I already identified myself. <laughs> um, I just feel like I'm still learning. So just listening, reflecting on my own role in land use as an architect um, something you said, Libby, like the very small details are consequential, rang true with me. Um, that, you know, sometimes the health of the land or an environment is, you know, death by a thousand cuts. So you can, you can be effective in your small way. So. I don't think I introduced myself. I'm Kerry. I'm from Wurundjeri country, Footscray. Um... To try to bring planning um, into, into the state of us as humans and living so concretely on this land, I would like to see um, the environment take more care. So, constructed environment as it most certainly is. Well, we can do some constructed environment well. For instance, Dane was talking about involvement with DELP and I recently saw out of this devastating area near Werribee where they've got um, a constructed area purposefully for the growling grass frog. And that is really something to show care of the environment, something to show that they're doing something about water flows, storm water flows, before it goes into the crewroid. <clears throat> so that seems to have a thinking process about it as far as... But it's this tiny little space in this enormous suburban junk heap. So, but more care to environmental issues for planning. Hi, I'm, I'm Loretta. I'm a settler woman who was born on Wurundjeri country and I've been raised here and I still live here. And um, despite my DNA coming from Italy. <laughs> um, so for me, I'm doing research, uh, particularly in the area of tourism at the moment. And I'm really interested and curious about how as a cross kind of sector way um, tourism can support um, the elevating um, cultural revival and and actually helping to start to change our relationship with this place. And one particular um, project I'm working on at the moment is around how we can change our relationship with the Birrarung. And, and uh, I think... I think some of the planning issues is around 
also building capacity for the planners to actually start to rethink and think from the perspective of the river. What does the river telling us it needs, for example? So I'll just stop my rave. Thank you. Um, thank you all for a really great talk. My name's Zach. Um, first first generation settler. Parents were migrants to Australia. Um, and yeah, I've been living on Wurundjeri country my, my whole life. And yeah, I guess my commitment moving forward, working, working in planning, is to try and tackle some of the, the ingrained and things that frustrate me on a daily basis is just kind of the lack of consideration for almost all culture. It seems to be driven purely by growth and profit and developer margins. So it's, um, yeah, using, really glad to hear you speak about ability to use planning tools that we have, um, but just reframing them to, to kind of have better outcomes um, and, yeah, using that to, to preference First Nation voices where possible to, to kind of get better outcomes. So thank you again. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name's Helen. Um, thanks for your thoughts today. I've really, really enjoyed hearing them. Um, I'm a planner and I have some involvement in the projects that you're talking about, so it's been amazing to come here and hear you speak about them in, you know, this, this forum. Um, I live and work on Wurundjeri country. Um, I've lived on Wurundjeri country all my life. Um, uh, I think as a planner, um, the big problem is what you say about the Torrens system, Libby, and I thought that was so interesting to hear you frame um, uh, that issue in that way about uh, boundaries and property ownership um, is just one perspective that we have over country and um, doing work at the moment with traditional owner uh, inputs um, has been an absolute eye-opener in terms of um, there's this whole other lens that we can put over planning which is all around country and it's around culture and all of that transcends um, what we have at the moment which is really based on lines on maps and it's an artificial construct and it's all around you know money and profit and um, these notions of territory which are um, incorrect in my view. So I think that there's a lot that we can do um, to change the planning system and our outlook around planning uh, and country from uh, the inside and with the tools that we have at the moment. So, um, yeah, I think um, I, I see a lot of optimism for the future and reframing what we have at the moment. Thank you. Hi. Um, when I was growing up, we used to go on holidays. We grew up on Ngunnawal country. Everywhere we went on holidays, it was all about water. It was always about going to a place that's either near water, near a river, or the day would be spent going to find a, a water hole that we can jump off and swim in. And I'm obviously quite dumb because I believed that you could swim, like Melbourne, amazing. 
like Brisbane, amazing. You can probably swim in like the city on a river. Let's go for a swim. That's fantastic. Um, and then I got here and realised like, mm, no, <laughs> no, we can't really do that. And hearing you talk about it like a living entity, it's, um, I, it, it's you know, it's something that like, gives me and my family a lot of energy and it's, um, it's, as a very anxious person as well, being in the water is really calming and it's just like I'm never really at peace more than like when I'm going for a swim or going in the water. Um, <clears throat> and there are so many rivers around here and like knowing how important water is to um, this area or to know how important water was to this area would just be, I don't know, it would just be amazing if we could actually yeah. go for a swim. Yeah. In there. Ah, <laughs> uh -huh, okay. Yeah. That's it. Hi, everyone. I'm Ella from Wondery Country. Um, I think the biggest takeaway for me from today was what you were saying, Ellie, about understanding your own history and then your outreach. And for me, as an urban designer who does a lot of context analysis and looks at physical things on plans, I think for me it's what I need to do moving forward is understand those non-physical things and understand where to get um, answers about that and kind of try and tap into that as, as much as possible and also just hack the planning system. Like I love the idea of making new overlays and making new um, sites if, if the other ones are not being recognised. So trying to do that as much as possible too. Um, um, my name is Jane. I'm an architect. And thank you very much for the discussion. Um, there's, um, as Louise said, there's so many aspects of practice that have to remember to push forward and um, do better. Um, I was actually born on the banks of the Birrawong in a Robin Boyd designed house. <laughs> so I was born in Wurundjeri country, but I grew up in Lichuita, in Tasmania, in the north and the south. Um, but I'm back, you know, I've been here again longer. Anyway, that's enough about me. Um, I think <laughs> I agree with what you were saying, Sarah, but I think maybe it needs to go a bit more national. Like if Heritage Victoria, and I don't, know if anyone works for Heritage Victoria and I don't know that much about it but if they're unable to um, encompass pre-settler heritage um, maybe we do need to think of a similar body to that but on a national scale um, just thinking of the heartbreak of the Jukun Gorge and it's just they're just it's just crazy that there's not that kind I know it goes a bit beyond planning but yeah I reckon take it national um, I'm Jess. I'm a non-Aboriginal woman um, living and working on Wurundjeri Woiwurrung country. Um, and I'm a landscape architect to work in private practice at the moment. Um, and I think I echo about some of the things that people were talking about taking time. Um, you know, I think in private practice sometimes we think that we don't have... Um, any agency to control programs of projects and things like that. But I think if we just start proposing that we do allow for time and, you know, maybe we don't get those projects that we don't want to work with people that value um, processes that allow for time and 
understanding that knowledge doesn't just happen instantly. And um, yeah, I mean, so many of the planning processes <laughs> take a lot of time. <laughs> so why can't we allow for, for time in other ways? Hello, everyone. My name is Jade. I am a Wiradjuri and Gumaray woman. Um, and I live on Wurundjeri country, gratefully. Um, I'm not a planner. But one of the things I noted today was um, the contemporary cultural practices that they mentioned, like making new scar trees to help support existing sites mm. and create new. I thought that was really interesting. So yeah, I'd like to investigate more into that. Hello everyone. Um, my name's Therese, I'm Jade's mother. I live up where Ellie comes from too, uh, up on the Bundjalung. Um, thank you very much. I've kind of crashed <laughs> here with, you know, just um, I'm not a planner. Um, but what I've taken from here is so much, oh, so much. Thank you very, very much. Just um, more knowledge about country um, and great being so grateful to be able to be here and... So I think more conversation is what I understand and what I think should happen just amongst just, you know, friends, family and, um, yeah, to create more awareness. And, uh, yeah, so that's me and thank you again. My name's Claire. Um, I live on Wondry Country and I'm not a planner either. I work for M Pavilion as well here. <coughs> um, so one of the things that really struck a chord with me, like not working in the system and not being a planner, was when Maddie was kind of putting into context the power that you had with the blue door um, versus like when something is happening of cultural significance for First Nations people. And I think for someone that doesn't work in that sort of government system, having that, that was quite illuminating. Um, it's probably maybe very obvious to everybody else. Um, and this is the second talk that we've attended today where, like, loss of access and fences has kind of been spoken about. So I think that that's really struck a chord with me as well. And, yeah, just grateful to get to attend these talks for working here. Thanks. Um, hi. It's really loud. Uh, uh, hi, my name's Belle. I uh, live and work on Orangery country. Um, and I, well, I actually grew up on Yoyora and Barabarara country, um, just on the Dungalin or the Murray River, as you might know it. So it's quite interesting to see the different approaches um, within architecture in rural areas and, and also in urban areas. Um, and so I guess I'd like to say that over my years and experience, I'm sort of optimistic about the changes that are happening um, in, in sort of throughout sort of the built environment. Um, and I suppose... Uh, I guess moving forward with the, I guess, little scope that we have uh, in terms of control and things, I guess we don't have the grand scheme of things in terms of planning controls and those kind of uh, influences, but we can try and drive our clients um, into a more sort of respectful direction, um, give them a better understanding. And sometimes we have clients actually really on board for that um, in terms of protecting like river red gums and those kind of things. Uh, so it's, I, I sort of, I'm, quite optimistic about how things are heading in that sense um, and I guess uh, I was thinking uh, in terms of what we can do ourselves is sort of creating an extension of culture through uh, interiors and exteriors uh, through landscaping and through uh, obviously it's there's so many different 
things involved with creating buildings and, and us especially sort of safe um, landscaping and design terms. Um, and I guess it's just trying to move forward with those sort of little elements, the, the small sort of, the quick little items rather than the fixing the whole big picture, I think is something that we can do now. And that's certainly something that we're approaching in our practice. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Hi. That is quite loud. Um, thank you. My name's Esther. Uh, I also um, live and work and was born on Wurundjeri country. Um, but with the background through many different Asian countries. Um, thank you so much for um, your time and for sharing here. Um, I think um, sorry. I'll work. I work with Bell, and Bell's come away optimistic. I think I'll just come away. I'll come away overwhelmed, <laughs> um, but in a in a good way, I guess. You know, it's learning, um, learning lots. Um, but I guess uh, what the purpose for coming here was to um, find better ways that. We, I'm not a planner, sorry, I'm an architect. So I guess while we aren't necessarily involved in policy writing, we enact out <laughs> a policy. Um, and we work with a lot of government and non-government um, organisations that you know ask us to tick boxes and they ask us to do very tokenistic things. And, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's being on the journey of at least um, doing better. <laughs> than ticking a box. Um, so thank you, and hopefully we can learn some further processes. Hi, I'm Molly. Um, I also work here at Enfilin. Um <laughs> I grew up on Wiradjuri country, and I live now on Wiradjuri country. Um, yeah, thank you so much for your talk. It's was really amazing and interesting and yeah I also was lucky enough to attend another talk this morning um talking about access to country which was interesting as well but I, I suppose something for, for me is um again like not from a planning kind of point of view but I feel like we need to just slow down and stop focusing and, and I know this is like a big broad utopian idea but to stop focusing so much on outcomes and stop focusing so much on like money for one but just having this finished product at the end and needing to have like these goals that we're working towards and I, and I think that it's yeah I think if we just slow down act now but slow down and not have a preconceived thing that we need to get to at the end because I feel like there's so many things within this system that we're doing that make people feel culturally unsafe that because there's this thing that we want, this product, which is just stupid, and I think it should go away. <laughs> um, thanks. I'm, I'm not sure if we're meant to do them. Okay. Uh, all right. Um, I think for me it's probably just about continuing to, like, host these kind of conversations. I think that we need safe spaces to have these types of yarns and to bring the truth into people's awareness about the impact of the planning system and what it's done to mob and then like empowering mob's voices in, in how we move forward and how that changes. So yeah, I think for me, it's about continuing to host spaces like this, but you know, I suppose a life commitment of mine is like empowering the voice of First Nations people to 
you know, care for country and to revive culture and to restore community. So I think I'll just try to continue doing that. Yeah, you kind of, um, you kind of, I was going to say something similar. I, I'd never been to one of these talks before. So it was uh, really good. I've done plenty of talks and I've done lots of smoking ceremonies. I've been to lots of welcomes. I've done lots of work in Indigenous areas and um, I've done youth work and I've spoke to children before. And um, But I've never actually come to one of these. So um, it's good to see they exist. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And I'm just going to – I'm going to try to get my hands on a – and a few spots on, on these kind of things. I, I, I enjoy these talks myself because it's not just uh, me informing people about what I know, but I, I learn from people like Libby and Ali here too. So it's, um, yeah, it's great for me as well. I had a go last night, but I'll add another one. Um, I th a really specific one, and I want you to hold me to this, Sarah, uh, is universities need to create different ways of teaching, planning, built environment generally, right? In partnership, in relationship. There we go. Maybe a little bit slower than we would have liked, but it, it is changing. Um, so I suppose that that's my call to wrap up and to, to thank everybody um, for being here. Thanks for going with us with the rain and, um, you know, uh, sticking it out and, and I think it's just one of those things that your presence here and your contribution and your listening, you know, um, we have this thing um, up in Arnhem Land where they have this concept called Dadiri and it's about deep listening and, um, you know, uh, on, on Bundjalung country it's called Gangar and it's about to, to think, to know, to listen, to understand and that's what being part of these conversations is about. So I'd just really like to thank you all for being here and to showing up and to engaging and, and thinking about what it looks like to, to move forward. Um, I'd like to thank Thane and his mob for hosting us here on Country. I really, um, you know, I don't take it lightly to be able to connect with people like yourself, but also to acknowledge like the work of, of your mob and what it looks like to engage in a really urban context as, as mob who have aspirations for country. And um, I'd really like to just, you know, thank you for being here and thank you for the hard work from, from your mob and really um, wish you well in engaging with Delp and, <laughs> you know, seeing some of these aspirations translate into the future. And Libby, always a pleasure. Um, luckily, we've been able to meet in person for the first time. I um, hope this is one of many. And thanks to Sarah and the M Pavilion team. Um, yeah, that's it. Thank you. <laughs> You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.